Happy New Year, my friends. Hope you're feeling rested and refreshed. I know you probably have lots of money goals you'd like to reach this year. So in this week's episode, I chat with financial planner Gary Graywall about what a certified financial planner is and how one can help you get your financial life in order. We also chat about how to negotiate FIRE, which is financial independence, retire early, and so much more. Hope you enjoy the show, and thank you so much for being here. The Mental Health and Wealth Show, the Mental Health and Wealth Show, the Mental Health and Wealth Show. Welcome to the Mental Health and Wealth Show podcast. This is your host, Melanie Lockhart. My journey with money and mental health started in 2012 when I was depressed and anxious about my student loan debt. In 2013, I started my blog, Dear Debt, which chronicled my debt payoff journey and changed my life. I later published my book of the same name about how I paid off $81,000 in student loan debt. It was my time blogging that showed me that I wasn't alone in my mental health struggles around money and that my own mental health impacted how I related to money. My mission now is to help others feel less alone and tackle these difficult topics. As a disclaimer, I am not a mental health professional or a financial professional, and all content on the show should not be considered professional medical or financial advice. As a trigger warning, please note that content on the show may include sensitive topics around mental health and suicide. If you are in distress, please get in touch with a professional by texting HOME to 741741. Thank you so much for being here, and if you'd like to support the podcast, please subscribe and review on your favorite podcast platform, and feel free to share episodes on social media and tag me at Melanie Lockhart. I would love to hear from you. This is Melanie Lockhart, host of the Mental Health and Wealth Show. Today, I'm interviewing Gary Graywall, a CFP and author of Financial Fives, the top 325 ways to save, earn, and thrive to retire before 65. He started a career in financial planning because he feels that personal finance knowledge can truly change the direction of someone's life in a drastic, positive manner. He started two businesses, bought and sold seven different cars, and negotiated almost everything while becoming more involved with volunteering and philanthropy. I love it, and I love your journey. Thank you for being on the show, Gary. Thank you for having me, Melanie. Excited to be here. Yeah, super excited to chat with you, all things CFP, financial planning, how people can prepare to live their best life and get their money together. So, you know, I've had a few shows on the podcast about, you know, what is a financial therapist? How can you work with a therapist? I actually have not had a concrete discussion about what is a CFP and how can you work with a CFP? So what does CFP stand for? What do they do? And can you explain how they help people with their finances? Yeah, absolutely. So CFP stands for Certified Financial Planner. So it's really like the industry-wide certification to uh, showcase to customers and clients like this person knows their stuff. They've had to go through a lot of continuing education and take a rigorous exam and they have to continue to make sure that they um, are keeping up to date on things like tax laws and different investment changes and things like that. So really it's just a matter of the in, in our industry, at least in my opinion, being one, it's the gold standard in terms of when you need to find somebody to help you with your finances. Yeah. And I know several people who have become CFPs and I know the exams are incredibly difficult. Some people have taken the exams multiple times and 
it just sounds like there's a lot to learn. And so when you work with someone that has that CFP designation, you can count on that they, you know, know their stuff. Am I correct? Yeah, absolutely. Because if you think about it, like you can find someone, quote unquote, financial advisor, but it might be somebody who's maybe working on commission or maybe they're in a life insurance company and, you know, they say they can help you with investing, but what are the credentials behind that? Like, how do you know that they actually are putting you in the best products or advising the best um, products for you? And financial planning is so much more than just investing, which is a common misperception. Um, you know, we help our clients with everything from with their insurance plans and their employee benefits. Um, we talk about estate planning. We talk about, you know, teaching their children about money. So it's really an overarching concept being a financial planner. And so this is really a way to show clients like, you know, we, we, we focus on the best for them. Thank you so much for sharing that. So I know there are a few different types of financial advisors. What's the difference between, you know, someone that takes a commission and someone that's, I think it's called fee only. Can you explain Mm -hmm. that for our audience? Yeah, absolutely. So typically someone who takes a commission is like, if I, let's say you and I are in a conversation and you're like, Gary, I need some, I need disability insurance in case something happens to me. And I'm going to probably go and find the product that I get the most commission on and, you know, spin it in a way that's make it say it's best for you. But that's not always the case, but that's typically how it might work is I'm going to get a percentage from the sale of that product to you as a commission. So in essence, you don't pay anything out of pocket, but indirectly I get compensated that way. Now, fee based would be. Um, you come to me and say, I need some help finding out the best disability insurance policy for me. So I'll do my research. We'll come up with maybe three or four different policies from different insurers, and we'll have a conversation on the pros and cons of each. And, you know, that's a meeting that we have. So typically maybe you'll pay, you know, $500 to $1,500 a year in financial planning. And those are just rough numbers and it's based on complexity. So that's where you really just say, I'm going to pay you for this. And that kind of removes that um, conflict of interest because I'm not going to get any more money by recommending one product versus another to you. Got it. Yeah, I think that's really important for people to understand, like, how are the advisors that you're working with getting paid? Not necessarily Mm -hmm. saying one way is better than the other, but just so that you understand in this way, someone's getting paid via a commission and that may or may not influence their advice. And one way you're paying straight up and hopefully get more unbiased advice. And I think that's really important for people to be aware of when they're making a decision on who to work with, how to work with them and what policies to engage in. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. It can really make a huge difference, especially, you know, depending on how much you work with them. So when should someone turn to a CFP for help? And can you kind of give us an overview of what that first session looks like? I'm sure there's a lot of anxiety. People are nervous to work with someone and have people, quote, judge them and their numbers and their Mm -hmm. financial situation. So let us know, like, what that looks like. Well, I mean, in my opinion, I I can say that financial planning is one of those things where you there's a misconception that you have to have a lot of money to work with a financial planner. And that's not true. So to answer your question on when should someone turn to a CFP, um, I would say as soon as they get their first job, because, you know, you're choosing your employee benefits, you're probably going to have a 401k. Or if you're starting a business or going into self-employment, you know, how do you know how much to set aside 
for taxes and what are some ways to reduce that? How do you make sure that you're protecting your liability? So really a lot of things we do in life, whether we think consciously about it or not, have financial implications associated with them. So working with a CFP can really ensure that you're looking at things from an objective standpoint. As far as when should someone or what does a typical session look like? You know, most of the time, it depends on if you work with a company and it's a salaried CFP there, or maybe it's the CFP themselves. If you have your own business, you can typically do what you like. But in the industry, typically how it works is you want to get to know the client. You know, what are your concerns? What's your experience with money? What have you done in the past in terms of working with a financial professional? Um, And then just getting to know their goals, kind of, are they in debt? Um, What are their assets? Do they have an emergency fund? Um, And helping them kind of build up their portfolio in a way that makes sense for their life. I love that. Thank you so much for sharing. And yeah, I love that you mentioned that you don't have to have a ton of assets to work with a CFP. I think, you know, (laughs) a lot of financial companies might have certain expectations for high net worth individuals. But I think there's been a huge sea change in the past couple of years where a lot of people in financial services realize the inequities that have been inherent in only serving high net worth individuals. And I think there's been a, a big change. And I love to see that because it's like, why are you only serving people who already have money? Clearly, they've figured out some part of the money game. But people that are in debt, that do have limited means, that don't really know where to start that haven't, you know, been well versed with this education, they need all the help that they can get. And they need that guidance with someone that they have the experience and they know what they're talking about. Right. And and that you just described the exact reason why I kind of switched from one part of the industry to another is because, you know, we would work initially with people who have a lot of money. And that's kind of how we make we make our money is off fees or of commissions. And so, you know, those are the customers that we go after. But then you start to see that there are people who are in debt and they're getting hounded by debt collectors, or maybe they have student loans and they're they're paying high interest rates. They don't even know that refinancing is an option. These are the kinds of clients that really do need help. And the industry is shifting that way. But before it was just, you know, commission-based and where can I make the most money? That's where the CFPs are going to go. Yeah, it's, you know, been so interesting to think about. I was having this conversation with a friend and there's a whole different kind of language or knowledge base with high net worth individuals. They know how to pay less in taxes. They know how to invest their money. They know how to leverage assets to make more assets. There's a whole kind of underlying invisible kind of network and language that People who are, quote, kind of, you know, normal or or day-to-day that aren't high net worth individuals, they don't necessarily have that knowledge. And so it's so interesting to see how disparate this knowledge can be. And I think it's so important that we try our best to empower people with that knowledge so that they can grow their assets so that we don't just make... (laughs) the rich richer and the poor poorer, and that we can try to level the playing field as best as we can. And, you know, I know we've talked on this show before about systemic inequality, and there's lots of things that are out of our control, obviously, like sexism and racism and inflation and wage stagnation. But what are the things that we can do to try to make our money work for us in a way that makes sense so that we have the best chance possible to build wealth for ourselves. 
Exactly. Very well said. So you're also the author of Financial Fives, the top 325 ways to save, earn, and thrive to retire before 65. I had a chance to read it and it was fabulous. And so I'm so curious, what inspired you to write that book and what do you hope readers get out of it? Yeah, I appreciate it. I'm, I'm glad that you enjoyed it. And, um, you know, what you just recently said about the wealth inequality and how people really don't know that the help is available for them and really lifting up those that have had a disadvantage in life. A lot of that was the reason why I wanted to write this book is because I read a lot of books and, you know, I had a comfortable upbringing and I just wondered growing up in school why there was such a disparity between the kids who had basically everything they wanted and those who didn't. And I saw that going into college as well. The students who could barely afford their rent and were taking on loans and other students who had really nice cars and didn't bat an eye if they had to pay a parking ticket every day. So um, I started to do more research and, and I thought, well, a lot of books that I'm reading are saying a lot of the same advice and each of them has their own perspective. But I, I just wanted to have a book where you don't have to read through like 450 pages and then you know forget about what was the real mission of the story. So I wanted to create a book that was kind of like a quick um, compendium or encyclopedia, if you will, on how do I do this? How do I save money when I'm buying a house? You know, can I negotiate the commission with my realtor? How do I negotiate my salary? What are some ways I can save money when I'm, you know, single and going into the dating scene or negotiating with my apartment? So these are all things that I learned through experience and also through reading various uh, publications. And I wanted to create it in a narrative that was easy to read, easy to implement with action items. So someone can pick up the book, you know, flip to the chapter they're wondering or curious about and say, okay, I'm going to read this two pages. Great. Done. This is a great idea. They can read it, you know, standing in line for coffee or, or whatever. So it's not like they have to feel, I need to read 30 pages today and get discouraged. So that was really the reason for writing the book, because I wanted to create that kind of a resource for readers. I love that. I think it's so important to create actionable content and give people a pathway of, you know, here's what you can do next. Here are different ways to get started, because as much as I love kind of the idea based inspiration content, we need people, you know, to know what to do next and, and where to look for those resources as well. Absolutely. Yes. And, you know, when you had your book, Dear Debt, you know, I thought that was really empowering about how you shared your story and, and how there was some tips in there that you shared with your readers. And that's a narrative that a lot of people align with. So, yeah, thank you. So you mentioned that you negotiated almost everything and you just mentioned right now that you negotiated a lot. So I'm curious, what are some of the things that you have negotiated? And also, what are your tips for people when they are negotiating? Oh boy, <laughs> what have <laughs> I negotiated? <laughs> um, I would just say, I mean, I, I mean, I guess I've negotiated everything from the price of a car to hotel rooms to a salary to uh, my, uh, you know, uh, they give you like those uh, referral bonuses if you live in an apartment complex. So um, basically, everything that doesn't have a price, even if it has a price, I've negotiated. Probably the only thing I haven't negotiated is like maybe the price of a shirt at, at, at Macy's or like, you know, the, mm -hmm. the, the grocery at, at Whole Foods. So, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I would just say like, you know, 
we live in a capitalistic society. We know that. And so there's, there's supply and there's demand. And so it's just a matter of asking yourself, is this a price I'm willing to pay for this? And, you know, if the other person on the other end is willing to reduce that in order to make things work, then great. Um, I'll give you an example. When I was living in Denver, Colorado, several years ago, and I was trying to find a roommate, I said, well, I'll give you the master bedroom. In exchange for that, you pay an extra $350 per month in rent. And so we did that. And that was one way of negotiating. And then the apartment complex came and said, we're going to give out um, $1,000 or $2,000 to anybody who refers someone to live here. And they had said to me, well, you know what? You You just had a roommate come in and sign on to your lease. He's not a new lease. And I said, well, wait a minute. I would not have signed this lease unless he was here with me. So they said, okay, we'll, we'll go ahead and give it to you as well. Um, I would say the biggest wow. thing that I've had the most fun with was negotiating the price of cars. Mm-hmm. So um, I love vehicles. And as you mentioned earlier, I'm on my eighth car right now <laughs> in the last <laughs> few years. So um, I just never wanted to deal with the depreciation. And mm-hmm. I have a good eye, I think, for valuable, for decent cars. And so I would just typically go to like private party or you can use tools like Car Gurus or True Car. And it'll tell you how long a car has been on the market and if there's been price drops. And, you know, the Internet is such a great tool. You can find out the price of cars anywhere and you can negotiate via email. Still, you know, due to experience, I found going to a dealership or going somewhere in person is really the best way to lock the deal in because mm-hmm. when you're there with, you know, checkbook in hand or something, they're going to be like, this is a buyer. And once they're out that door, very unlikely they're going to come back. So, you know, being respectful, doing your research, um, never ever being in a position where you need them more than they mm-hmm. need you can really help you kind of get comfortable with negotiating. So that's what I'd say. I love that. So I'm curious if you have any tips, like let's say you're at a car dealership and the car dealership is very pushy. They're very salesy, aggressive in your face. How do you deal with that? How do you get the upper hand? I would just say like, if they're being pushy and aggressive, you know, you just, you just want to be very firm with them. Like, look, I came in here for a reason and I know my budget. This is what I'm comfortable with. If you're not going to proceed with this price or with this deal, the way that we've discussed, that's fine. I'm going to leave. And like I said, you don't want to have to need them more than they need you. So have a backup plan. Like, okay, if this car, I really like it, but if they're going to treat me this way and be pushy and salesy, I'm just going to, you know, go somewhere else and get it. So, um, I mean, nowadays it's a lot easier for people not to have to deal with that. You have things like CarMax and Carvana, where you can buy a car online, but you know, you lose that negotiation aspect in there because they kind of build that into the price. So if you're willing to go about it and, you know, yeah, sometimes you're going to deal with people who are a little bit pushy or salesy, but you just have to go into it that it's just a, it's just a game for them sometimes, you know, just be respectful, but be firm and don't give in to people saying, oh, we're really close and I'll give you this and this car is so great and you're going to look so great in it and, you know, pump you up that way. You've just got to go in and be very stern about it. So you have to be willing to walk is what I'm hearing. 100%. Yes. 
So has there been a situation where you have walked or where the negotiation didn't work in your favor? And how did you deal with that? Oh, yeah, there has been a, there's there's been plenty of those. I would say um, the most recent one that comes to mind is when I was trying to buy a property. And um, as we know today, especially more so than three years ago, home prices are just insane. And so I had made an offer and um, it was accepted and I had negotiated for them to make repairs to the property. And they, they, they said no. And um, I said, okay, well, you know what? Obviously I was looking forward to moving in there. I was planning uh, around it. And so my realtor had advised me that, you know, they're splitting the closing costs. That's customary. These are not very expensive repairs. But I knew based on the condition of the home and how long it had been on the market that, you know, they don't really have a backup if they accepted my offer. And, you know, I I felt it was overpriced as it was, but they ended up not doing it. They just kind of dug their heels in and said, you know, this is it. And we're not putting a penny more in. And I kind of thought if I just walk, they'll come back and say, okay, we'll do it. But they didn't. And um, it's funny because they ended up putting the house in the market earlier this year and made a lot more money than they would have than they sold it to me, but who would have known? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Interesting. Thank you so much for sharing that. So I know that you are interested in FIRE, which is financial independence, retire early. Now, what should people who are interested in financial independence be aware of? Like, what is it as a concept? How can people strive towards that? And how can people you know, not make themselves miserable trying to reach that goal. Yeah, totally. So, you know, as you mentioned, FIRE, it's, it's financial independence, retire early. I, I typically like to have people focus on the FI aspect of it, the financial independence, right? Because that, you know, as a concept, it's really just about how do I get to a point where I can do what I want to do or be in a career that I have an impact on and don't really have to worry that by about the financial consequences of it. It could even be working towards putting yourself in a position where you don't have to be at the mercy of an abusive boss or a company that overworks you. It's having the ability to walk away and giving yourself the time to find the the right next job, not just the next job. Um, mm-hmm. So as far as your your question about how to not feel like you're you know you're depriving yourself or anything like that, it's really about conscious spending. So, you know, I will teach you to be a millionaire and your money or your life are great books that talk about that concept about, you know, making a purchase. Is this really worth my time? Am I really going to care about this in the future? Does it align with my values? And then you can start to build a life around things that are important to you, whether it's traveling or volunteering or books and just kind of just ignore the rest of it. And eventually you'll find a happy medium as you try it out to see what aligns with you and what doesn't. The other thing I'll say is that people have different timelines in regards to five, right? Sometimes people say, I want to reach five by the time I'm 40, but that doesn't always work out. Some people reach it by 30, some people in between, and some of their 50s. The whole aspect of it is just about, you know, ask yourself why you want it. And once you get it, what does your life look like after that? And that can sometimes help you visualize, okay, I can really see this happening. I would wake up and go volunteer. I'd play with my dog. I'd play with my kids, whatever you want to do. And that can serve as motivation 
for you making a little bit of sacrifice now. But for the most part, I would say, is just seeing, asking yourself the reason you want to pursue it, what it's going to enable you to do, and then designing your life around your values, and eventually you'll get there. Hey there, thanks so much for listening to the Mental Health and Wealth Show. I wanted you to pause real quick and take a mindful minute. Close your eyes and take a deep breath. And exhale. Take a deep breath again. And exhale. Taking a moment for yourself is so important for your mental health. Now, before we get back to the show, I just wanted to say, if you are enjoying this episode, please review the podcast and share it on social media and tag me at Melanie Lockhart and share your thoughts. It'll really help spread the word about the show and help others with their money and mental health. You can also support this independent podcast and buy me a coffee at ko-fi.com forward slash Melanie Lockhart. Yes, it's so important to have that vision of what your FI life looks like. A lot of people, you know, have this idea like, I want to be rich. I don't want to work anymore. I want to be wealthy. I want to make more money. And that's great. But why? And Mm -hmm. I teach this to people who are paying off debt because same thing with paying off debt. No one's going to care about paying off debt or earning more money or reaching fire unless they have a why attached to it, because Mm -hmm. then it just feels like hard work. It feels like deprivation. It feels like you're wasting your time. You're wasting your money. But if you have that why attached to it, like for me, when I was paying off my debt, I was miserable working seven days a week, did not like my life, but I created a debt-free dream list because I was like, what is my life going to look like in the future when I'm not in debt? And I said, I'm moving back to LA because I hate Portland, Oregon. I'm going to get cats because I'm consciously not choosing to get cats while I'm still in debt. I'm going to take my mom to Italy because she's never been to Europe and I know she won't go out with me, go without me. And I was able to accomplish all those things within two years of paying off my debt. And it was that much sweeter to have that very specific vision of what my debt-free life would look like. And that kept me motivated while I was in the trenches of debt repayment. And I think people can do something similar with their FI number. And I will say, you know, this is the mental health and wealth show. (laughs) Definitely manage your mental health. I don't recommend working seven days a week. I've mentioned on the show before that I would not do my debt repayment the same again, because it did affect my mental health, even though, yes, I have the fun success story and all of that. But being honest, I don't recommend people ruin their mental health and work all the time just to, you know, pay down debt a little bit faster. But I wanted to share that. So um, I'm curious, like what, I know there are several numbers that people should keep in mind to reach their fire number. Like how can someone even start to figure out what their fire number might be? Yeah, so typically the rule of thumb so far has been like 25 times your annual spending should be kind of like the number that you're going for to save up for. Um, There's a lot of variables with that though, right? It's like for some people, they may have a partner that's not on board. And so they just need to consider how does that look like if I'm not working and they are? Like, is that going to change my financial responsibilities in how we work together? 
Um, some people may move in with family or some people may move to their own place. And so housing is a big question mark about that. It's like when you reach by, will your housing costs look different? We saw with the pandemic, right? People were moving out of big cities and, and going into the suburbs. And that's partially why housing and renting has gone up so much. And so geo-arbitrage, like we talk about in the FIRE community is, can I work in a place or can I work remotely and live somewhere where maybe my income taxes are less, the cost of living is less, rent or mortgage is less, and that can really help you reach that FIRE number faster. So that's kind of how we, I would say 25 times typically your annual spending is that number you want to go to. Now, I'm sure, Melanie, you've heard of like the barista FIRE and fat FIRE and so those are just referencing, like, do you want to work a little bit even once you hit FI? And that's referring to barista fire, right? You can work a couple of days a week at a fun job to supplement your spending. And then we have fat fire and there's a lot of other ones too. But that's referring to, I don't want to reduce my lifestyle, right? I want to travel and I want to watch restaurants and I want to donate to charity and I want to help out my family and maybe even increase my spending more than so than now. So that would ultimately change your fine number. And so asking yourself those questions, you know, going back to what are your values? What do you want your life to look like? Can help you design a plan to reach that number and then work towards that number. Yes. And I've also read about the 4% withdrawal rule. Mm -hmm. Can you share a little bit about that? And like, what are the benefits of it? What are the cons of it? Like, what should people be aware of? Like, is that even a good rule to begin with? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say the 4% withdrawal rule is just referencing like when you are retired, you can take out 4% safely from your investments and that would mean your money doesn't run out. And the theory behind that is, you know, as you are invested, you can typically expect, you know, a, a real return or inflation adjusted return of about 6% annualized. And so if you take out 4%, you know, even given market volatility, over time, your money would stay pretty stable or it would just draw down at a very, very slow rate. So that number has kind of been questioned a lot because for some people it's not sustainable because it doesn't keep up with their lifestyle needs. It doesn't keep up with the changes to their life. And I would just say that it also doesn't take into account a lot of other things. You know, people may get a pension. People get Social Security. You know, obviously, if you wait to get it at that point. You also have to think about people have real estate assets that can build into that plan. Um, they might get help from a spouse. They might get disability payments. They might reduce, um, you know, their spending in certain areas. So sometimes they say the 4% rule is kind of the rule of thumb. And it, it, it can sometimes make people feel a little, have a scarcity mindset. And so if you need to take a little bit more, that's fine. Take a little bit less, that's fine. But the idea is you start to draw from your investments. If the market is down, you want to have a cash cushion or at least a conservative mix of bonds, and you can draw on that instead of drawing on your stocks. When the markets go back up, you can resume replenishing your cash funds and then taking from those funds to supplement your lifestyle. Yes, love that. Thank you so much for sharing. And for anyone listening who might be interested in FIRE or is already pursuing FIRE, I just want to say that it's really important to run your own race and not compare your financial situation to anyone else's because I remember when I started blogging about my debt repayment, I also discovered the FIRE community and I remember thinking, oh my gosh, 
these people are retiring at the same age that I'm paying off debt. Yep. And that really messed with my mind because I paid off my debt when I was 31. Mm-hmm. And I had friends who were, you know, retiring at 31, 32, 33, and some, you know, in their 40s. And that was like, oh, wow, I feel so behind. Like, this is just not even a worthwhile goal for me. And I'm not super into the FIRE community. I like the idea of FI. It's definitely something that I'm pursuing casually in the sense that, yes, I do want to like not work forever and right. it'd be great to not work to 65 or 67 and have more freedom in my business. So I'm, like I said, I'm casually interested in in that, but I'm not like a diehard, like, yes, I'm, you know, doing this all the time because I also want to enjoy my life now. And I'm not down to cut every corner, every, you know, in every way possible. But mm-hmm. I think it's important for people to realize like, it can just mean that you don't want to wait until 65 or 67 to retire. Like right. maybe that's 60, maybe that's 50, maybe that's 55. And if anyone's listening who is in their 40s and 50s and you're just getting started, that's okay too. Because I think so many people like like I did, you're in your 30s, 40s, or 50s and you hear these amazing stories and it can feel inspiring, but also deflating because you're like, I'm just getting started on my mm-hmm. financial journey, which is why I wanted to preface this with take the inspiration with a grain of salt, take the idea and also just run your own race and realize what can I take from this to inspire my own journey, but also not make myself miserable by comparing my situation with someone else's. And as we've mentioned in this podcast, we all have our own privileges. We all have our own benefits. We all have our own other issues that we're dealing with that, you know, interfere with us making progress. So it's important to keep all of that in context in your own financial journey. Right. A hundred percent. And, you know, what you, what you said about feeling deflated and, you know, some of your friends are retiring when you're just paying off your debt. It's so important to keep that in context because, Comparison is a thief of joy. We've all heard of that, right? So just know that your journey is not the same as everyone else's. Don't never beat yourself down if you haven't saved up as much as maybe your friends have. There's so much to store people's stories we don't know. And, um, you know, I, I wrote a blog post a couple of months ago where I said, you know, I, I don't really agree with the RE part of the fire movement, you know, retiring early. It's great if that's a goal. I think that's wonderful. But it's also more about just giving yourself that sense of security and freedom to say, okay, I am financially independent now. I don't have to be abused by my boss and then, you know, worry about paying my mortgage or making sure there's food on the table or making sure I can fix my car. It can then give you that freedom to think about how can I contribute to my community in better ways? How can I use my skills in a manner that's going to give me more fulfillment? Maybe that's politics. Maybe it's volunteering. Maybe it's, um, you know, working for a charitable organization. So it's just, you know, giving you the opportunity to think about how you want to contribute in a way that gives you fulfillment is a really important aspect of FI. Yes, I love that because that really brings me to my next question, which is about how can people find purpose in their money and not make money just to earn more money? I think the whole goal of FI is to not just be, you know, 
a capitalist worker and in, in feeding the system, but really living a life that makes sense on your own terms. And so how can people find that purpose while they're still working and still trying to reach their goals and, you know, not just get stuck in this trap of like, I want to make money just to make money. Yeah, I, I think it's, again, just going through and visualizing what you want your life to look like. I'm, I'm 100% with you on sometimes people are into fire because they just want to make more and more and they're just focused on, you know, making more and they're going into crypto and they're going to real estate investing and flipping and, and this and that. But it's like, what is the end goal of it? You know, it's how much do you really need? And that's why it's so important for that introspection and determining what you want your life to look like. What are the resources you're going to have available to you? And what impact do you want your money to have? A lot of people in FIRE are don't have children and they've made that conscious decision not to so they can continue to have their lifestyle. So ask yourself, if you don't have them yet, will you want them in the future? Will you be responsible for caring for your parents? These are all questions to think about of, you know, what does your family dynamic look like? What do you want your life to look like? Are you charitable? You know, do you want to support the arts? Do you want to support your church, the environment? And money can really give you the sense of fulfillment and doing those things. But you've got to know what you want your life to look like. Otherwise, earning for the sake of earning and investing for no reason can really just give you a sense of what am I doing this for and, and take you off track. Yeah. And, you know, one of my new favorite podcasts is I Will Teach You To Be Rich by Ramit Sethi. And it's all about love and money. And he has conversations with couples about their financial situations. And a lot of them are very high net worth individuals. I'm talking about, I've heard episodes between 3 million and 10 million. And mm -hmm. it's so fascinating because you listen to the episodes and it's very clear that some of these people they still feel like it's not enough that they have 3 million or 10 million and they're not really sure what they want to do with their money except to make more of it. And I think that's a perfect example of how if you don't have a clear vision for your life and your money, then you're just stuck on this hamster wheel of, I just feel like I should make more money. There's never enough. There's never enough. And it's like, mm -hmm. you, you could, you know, go from being broke to 10 million, but at 10 million, you're still feeling that scarcity mindset because you haven't adjusted your mindset or your vision for your life, even though you have so many assets that a lot of people will probably never have in their life. And so I think it's important to really have those goals and also know what is enough for you and really do some of that internal work that, you know, we all have money mindset issues from our childhood, from our friends, from our culture. We all have baggage and to really figure out what beliefs aren't serving me anymore and holding me back. Because if you listen to the episode, which I, I definitely think people should listen to the show, it's, it's so fascinating and insightful to hear like the money issues couples are having, even at very high incomes and high net worth, and just shows you what you need to do to really kind of heal those issues before becoming wealthy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 100%. And you know, you made a very good point about people who may have a net worth in the multi millions of dollars, but they still have the same mindset as when they were saving money. And it's that again, goes back to you just an intentional life, like, where does this scarcity mindset come from? And what are your real concerns of running out of money? 
you know, people will say like, oh, I've got $10 million. But as soon as the next guy uh, next to me has $11 million, you're kind of thinking, well, well, wow, that just, that really sucks. I'm not doing as good as I should be. And you hear it so many times from people on podcasts, on interviews that are worth multi-million dollars and more than, you know, a lot of people could dream of, but they're still concerned about a lot of things. My kids, you know, are what's going to happen to them or Am I going to have my house foreclosed on if something happens? Or will I get sick or a big medical bill? Even though they have the planners and the policies and so many protections in place to make sure that those things don't happen. So, Yeah, that's why it's super important for everyone to work on their money mindset and really have a clear vision of what is enough and also what do I want my life to look like? And, you know, for some people... All they dream of is making 60,000, 80,000, six figures, and maybe that's enough for their lifestyle. Some people, maybe that is in the millions of dollars. You know, it really depends on where you live, the lifestyle you want, the relationships you have, your family. But I think it's really important to really understand for yourself and the life that you want what does enough look like? What is the vision of? the life that I want, because if you don't have that clarity, then nothing will ever be enough. You're just going to keep moving the bench post. You're going to say, oh, I'll be happy with my first million. Then you get your first million. I'll be happy with 2 million. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'll be happy with 3 million. And then the goalpost continues to change. And then you're never satisfied and you're never happy because the goalpost keeps moving. And that's something that I've referred to as the I'll be happy when syndrome. Oh, yeah. Something that, that we really need to be aware of and also stop because we just need to have mindfulness of our money now and our life now. And as we've seen, especially in the pandemic, we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know when our time is up. So we have to enjoy our situation and our money now, regardless of where we're at. So true. Yeah. And then, and then what you say about, you know, the future is not certain, right? So it's like, we have to find that balance. And that also goes back to your mental health and thinking that, if you're in a place where your journey to FI is causing you to be sad or depressed or missing out on functions and not going to your friend's wedding or not going out to dinner, then you need to just take a pause and determine how can I make this balance better? So I'm motivated to do it and I, I'm excited to continue on my journey to FI and not be scared of it and not be like, it's, it's destroying me now, you know, because you don't know what tomorrow will bring. So you absolutely have to find the balance that works for you. Yes. So my final question is, you know, we are starting a new year. I'm curious if you have financial tips for people to make this year their best financial year yet. Yeah, um, I'm working on a blog post for that. So definitely keep your eye out. And uh, it's really just what I would say is always just take an assessment of your budget. You know, in the new year, it's always easy in the holidays. Oh, my gosh, we have Christmas. We've got gifts to buy. We've got travel. And then you kind of guilt yourself into, oh, I'm never going to budget. I'm never going to do this right. So enjoy the holidays within your means. But I think the best thing is if you can look at your budget, and I'm not saying, you know, okay, once you spent $20 at a coffee shop in a month, you're done. It's more of like the conscious spending, kind of like what Ramit says um, in his book. And, and it's about where do I want to spend my money? And you look at the income sources coming in. And you want to do what I like to call giving each dollar a job. So you think of all of your income as employees. Every dollar in your income is an employee. 
So once you get your paycheck, what are they supposed to do? Some pay for your housing, some pay for your food, some pay for your transportation. And then it's about, okay, I want to go to um, Hawaii in December. Great, I'm going to save $300 a month so I can go on this trip. So it goes into a bucket, a savings bucket, and it's out of sight, out of mind. I don't have to worry about going out to dinner because I've got a separate bucket for that. You know, so it's just about automating your life. You know, The Automatic Millionaire by David Bach was a great book. That's something that really helped me in my financial situation. And it's just about making sure that the things that are the most important to you and the needs, put them on an automatic plan. Pay your bills automatically, pay your credit card automatically. You don't get any late fees. And then the other aspect is whatever's left over, enjoy it. You know, go out to dinner, go to the farmer's market, enjoy the movies, whatever it is that brings you joy. You need to be able to do that because you're already meeting your goals with the automation. Yes, love that. And I also love Paula Pant's idea of the anti-budget where you just save and invest things off the top and pay your bills. And then whatever else you have is like, well, I already you know, met the minimum for my saving and investment goals. And now I don't have to worry or track everything. And of course, I think this can vary from person to person. But I think depending on your budgeting style, you can either do kind of more traditional budgeting or do the anti-budget. I think the the main goal is as long as you are making progress on your savings and investment goals and also being aware of your spending, make sure that it's spending on your values, that it's within your means and that you're not, you know, creeping into debt mode. Exactly. Yeah. You've got to just, you know, realize that we're all here for a limited amount of time. So you can't just give every dollar to saving and investing after paying your bills you got to enjoy too. And so doing it in alignment with your values and in what brings you joy is so important. And the other thing I'll say is as far as New Year's resolutions, we're in a really tight job market right now. So if you are not feeling properly compensated at your job or you're not happy where you are, this is bet a good time as any to start talking to recruiters, to putting your name out there, putting some feelers out there, get to know kind of what the opportunities are. And I think you'll be surprised at how much you can increase your compensation or at least your level of happiness. Perhaps you can get some equity compensation, better benefits, but it's a great time to look for a job if that was on top of mind. Love that. Yes. Now is a perfect time to do that. So many things are changing in the workforce. So take advantage of any opportunities and make sure that you are managing your money. Well, thank you so much for being on the show, Gary. Where can people find you and how can they work with you? Yeah, thanks, Melanie. Um, Financialfives.com is my blog. And you can also find Financial Fives, the book, on there or Amazon.com. So I appreciate it. And um, always love to hear from fans and members and sign up for our newsletter. We just publish a blog post pretty much every week and don't like to inundate anybody. So Um, But yeah, that's where you can find me, financialfives.com. I really enjoyed this conversation. It's always a pleasure. Um, I think the way that you structure these conversations is so important. And so I appreciate it. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time and thank you. Thanks, Melanie. Thank you so much for listening to the Mental Health and Wealth Show. Want more content and support? Sign up for the Mental Hump newsletter and get our free mental health and money inventory worksheet. You can sign up at mentalhealthandwealth.com and also check out our other blog posts and podcast episodes. 
Also, we host a mental health and wealth hangout every other Thursday over Zoom at 5 p.m. Pacific to chat about all things money and mental health. The best part, it is free. If you'd like to support the podcast, it would mean so much to me if you left a review. And you can also support me at ko-fi.com forward slash Melanie Lockhart. And lastly, I want to remind you to do something for yourself to take care of your mental health and wealth.